All right, if we could come together and have a seat, we'll go through announcements, and we'll have our call to worship. Happy 4th of July weekend to everybody. Happy 4th of July day to everybody. Thanks for being here. I know uh, a lot of our folks are welcome to our small group today. Uh, I know we had a lot of uh, a lot of people doing the, the family thing and going and doing and spending some time on the lake, whatever. So uh, thank you for being here. Going and doing and spending some time on the lake, whatever. So thank you for being here. Going and doing and spending some time on the lake, whatever. I just had an out of body kind uh, of experience. That's <laughs> I don't like the way I sound at all. So uh, thank you. Thank you. At all. So. All right, let's, we really uh, got to stop that. Thank, we, you. Like thank you. We don't have to record today at all, I promise. A few announcements for you. Just a reminder that on Wednesdays, uh, make sure I get the times right. I can never remember these things. On Wednesdays from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., uh, the Groves host a kind of a pool party for anybody that wants to come there and just have a time of fellowship, swimming, cooling off, all of that. That is bring your own kind of picnic lunch. Uh, that, again, is not a drop off and leave and come back. It's not daycare. It's uh, for you to come and enjoy time and let your kids enjoy time with other kids and uh, just uh, have time fellowshipping if you can do that. Um, so that's, uh, that's Wednesdays from 11 to 2. I think every missional community is taking a break during the month of July. So um, I think that uh, it obviously begins now. So enjoy your time. If you want to get together or anything like that, that's fine. I think, uh, Caroline, did you all talk about, is your MC kind of doing a pool thing during that time or anything? Okay. 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 Yeah. So for those listening online, we'll give out more information about this. We'll post it on Realm or whatever. But the 14th, we'll do uh, we'll do kind of a basically all the missional communities or basically the church come together and uh, have kind of a, a time of, of of gathering and fellowship at the groves. So we'll we'll give out more specifics about that because I can't remember everything that Caroline said. So um, anyway, so that's coming up uh, in missional community leaders meeting. Don't forget that'll be the 18th of this month. We're planning that for 6:30. Uh, that'll be that'll be here. All right. So we'll have that time as well. Um, uh, just another reminder about the ministry opportunity at Wade Hampton uh, at that the, the renewal program on Wade Hampton for Miracle Hill. We still need people to sign up. I think the spot that they need signed up for is Tuesdays to help do meal prep. Um, I, ideally, we want to be able to get in there and have one-on-one exchanges with the people that are there. Specifically, you women are going to have opportunities to meet with these other women and pour into their lives. We're waiting on that opportunity to come up right now uh, because it's the newer uh, the the newer part of their ministry. The the women that are there working. Uh, ministering to those women are, are working to build rapport and credibility with them so they're not trying to inundate them with people yet. Because I know there's a lot of people that want to get in there and uh and 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 and, and develop relationships with these uh with these ladies in need and specifically for the purpose of giving them the gospel. Men, we will meet for our men's meeting the twenty fifth of this month. We did not meet the month of July. The the only opening 
um, would have been Father's Day. So we, we just didn't meet for Father's Day for obvious reasons. So we will meet the 25th. Um, just kind of prepare yourself. We will be kind of discussing, discussing more of... Um, more of the well, we'll be discussing justice, not exclusively social justice, but we will be discussing justice, uh, broader reaching type of topic. And doing so, we will uh, we will cover the issue of social justice as well. Uh, Austin, I talked about that the other day. It's kind of a, a burning in his heart to really uh, kind of go through that because of stuff that he's been reading. So we'll revisit that as it's very. Um, it's just prevalent right now, and there's things to talk about, especially from a biblical perspective. The only other thing I think I have to say is today we'll finish up the book of Habakkuk. And um, if you've missed some of those, they're online, obviously, but uh, it's been a good book. It's been quick. I think I, this will be my third sermon to preach in it, so it's rare for me to only have that much involvement in a book. Austin has done a fantastic job of, uh, of, of, of filling in those times that I couldn't be here, and he's done a great job handling that text. But uh, I'll say this. The, the next book that we're going to go into, and I'll give my rationale, is the book of Galatians. We're going to deal with that epistle. Uh, it is highly applicable for where we are as a church. It is very gospel-centric, and ultimately we chose that, we made that decision because I told you our vision for 2021 was we wanted to be very gospel-centered, very gospel-saturated, and right out of the gate, that's exactly what Paul deals with with the church at Galatia. He deals with an attack on, on, he deals with a false gospel, attacks on real gospel, and so there's just some very, very timely things for us to deal with throughout that book. Um, so we want to go through that. So Austin made that appeal. We were kind of thinking either Acts or Galatians, but I think Galatians won that out for obvious reasons. So for those of you who are like me and you're like, I can't wait for Acts. Maybe I'm the only one. It's coming one day, one day, hopefully Lord willing, it'll be there. But I think, uh, there's a strong appeal to deal with the book of uh, Galatians. So, anywho, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask uh, Jeremy Shola to come up here. He's going to uh, read to us our, our scripture for our call to worship, and he's going to pray for us as we enter to our time together as uh, as worship. Yeah, Jeremy. Call to worship is from Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. And I want us to just notice the contrast between idols and the, the true God. Um, and specifically the, the theme in these three verses of, of silence. And so uh, just look for that word silent or, or anything that has to do with that and compare what, what it says about idols and then what it says about, about God. Um, so chapter 2, verse 18. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like our false gods, that you are not silent, but that you demand us to be silent before you, that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have, uh, you have made known to us your, 
your revelation of yourself, that you have made known to us your gospel, that you have condescended to to, to give of yourself to us, God. And we pray that we, uh, in response to that, would trust you and love you and that we would give of ourselves to you and to one another in love. And we thank you for uh, the joy it is to meet together as as believers this morning, that we can come before your throne boldly in the name of your Son. We thank you that we can have fellowship with you and we long for the day where we can have perfect fellowship with you and perfect fellowship with one another and we pray that we would be working toward that day thank you for the gift of your son it's in his name we pray amen if you guys would stand with us and sing
Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, that, um, God, you are the Messiah. Lord, that you have overcome the grave, that, Lord, you are seated right now at the right hand of the Father. God, you're reigning and ruling, and you'll continue to do so until every enemy is placed under your feet. Father, we rest in that. God, we rest in the assurity that, Father, you have already won the day. It's our job to just go tell the world, call them to repent, to obey their king. And so, Father, right now we want to lift up, Lord, the missionaries that you have sent to China and, God, to Ireland and South Africa. God, would you bless them, Father? Would you provide for them and protect them? God, would you allow them to see much fruit? And, God, even if they do not see visible fruit, Father, may they rest in the fact that, Lord, the fruit is faithfulness, the fact that, Lord, they're there and they're proclaiming your word to the nations, Father. Would you give them contentment and rest in that alone? God, may your name be magnified, Lord, among the nations. God, we also want to pray uh, for the missionaries, Lord, stateside here. God, the abortion mill, it is a mission field. Lord, the education system, it is a mission field. Um, Lord, all these places where you have your people, Lord, uh, sharing the truths of your word about who you are. God, we lift them up. God, we lift up our teachers. God, we lift up, Lord, uh, Lord, the preachers who go to the streets, Lord, on Friday night in Greenville. God, would you just continue to bless them, Father, equip them for the work, Lord, that you've laid out before us, Father. And, Lord, may we not just place these, these ideas of evangelism, God, on these, these things to be set apart, God, from everyday life. But, God, may we, may we see and find opportunities. May you show us, God, as we just go from day to day, Lord, if we're changing tires, if we're, we're painting, uh, God, whatever it is that you've given us to do with our hands, Father, may we do it all to your glory. And may, Lord, we use the opportunities to evangelize those who you have placed in our sphere of influence every day. God, I pray right now for Lord Allen as he brings your word. God, I pray that you'll just completely empty of him, of himself. God, may we not hear the words of a mere man, but Father, may we hear from heaven this morning as he proclaims your word to us. God, I pray that we'll leave, Lord, this place looking more like the image of Jesus than we did when we came in. And God, we pray that everything that we think, say, and do will bring honor to your Son and Him alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The three and four-year-olds, if y'all will meet Miss April in the back, she'll take you to your class. Let's stand together, if you will, please.
temptation claims the battle and it seems the night is won deeper still then goes the anchor though I justly stand accused I will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be
I've been asked to speak this afternoon on the subject, why the necessity of the atonement. It was necessary in the first place because of who God is. And it was necessary in the second place because of who we are. The two things that we fail to understand most miserably in popular theology is the nature and character of God and the nature and character of sin. 
The judge of all of the earth is righteous. The judge of all of the earth is perfect in the administration of his justice. If God is holy and God is righteous and there's no if to it, since God is righteous, not only will he punish sin, he must punish sin. One sin is all it takes to send you to hell forever. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God doesn't grave on a curve and said, like they say in Islam, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you get into heaven. No. One sin. You're finished. The slightest sin that we commit against God. We are setting our authority over His. We are rebelling against the transcendent majesty of the universe. We are violating the rule given by the king of the cosmos. We're so used to sinning, so accustomed to sin, that we rarely ever even have the barest grasp of the gravity involved by defying God. The Bible tells us that we are by nature at enmity with God. In our fallen humanity, our most formidable foe and enemy is God himself. And so the Bible speaks of salvation in terms of reconciliation, in terms of ending a war. The first fruit of our justification is what? That we have peace with God and access into his presence. When we come to Christ, the war's over because our mediator has reconciled us to the God who is our enemy. So in the cross, the Lord Jesus propitiates the Father and expiates our sin, removing it from us as far as the east is from the west. So that in the cross, God is both just and the justifier of his people. All right, so if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. 
So last week I spent 45 minutes and I dealt with just one verse. Today we're going to go from verse 3 to 19, but I promise you it will not be those 45 minutes. Um, Every verse won't be 45 minutes. Today's going to read much like a commentary until we get to the final application. Today's going to be a bit different in the sense that Habakkuk shifts in the way that he writes. This is a pretty complex portion of scripture, to be honest with you. Um, he moves to a poetic form of literature. And when you, when you read poetry in and of itself, it can be difficult to interpret. <laughs> uh, so, but that's how this is taken. This, this minor prophet writing in this way, he writes in a poem. He writes in a song. And you can hear the cadence as we go through it. And you can see what Habakkuk deals with as known as a theophany. That term is used a lot with the scholars who deal with this text. And so just to make it very palatable for you, I won't use that term a lot, but understand a a theophany is the manifestation of God in an observable way. It's not that you see God, right? No man has seen God, right? It's not that. It's that you see the manifestation of God. The plagues were a manifestation of God. The, uh, the, 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 the cloud and the fire that led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, that is a theophany. So Habakkuk speaks here in terms of a theophany. He reflects back on all the things that God has done. And you're going to see him reference those things. But understand this, one of the questions that theologians wrestle with, with regards to this portion of Habakkuk, is whether Habakkuk is is speaking of the past or the future. And uh, let me just simplify it for you. I do believe the way to understand this is that he speaks of the past, and his referencing of the past brings surety for the reader of things to come. So that's how we understand it. Uh, what we know of God and His faithfulness brings surety to those who are His beloved. Okay, so that's how we're going to approach this text. Okay, so Habakkuk, let me just kind of give a proper uh, lift off here for those of you that haven't been with us. And if you're not as familiar with the book of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk basically begins by questioning God, not questioning the character of God, not questioning the nature of God but really trying to understand, okay, God, I trust that you're good in all this. I trust that what you're doing is, is a part of who you are, and it's good. I just I want, to under, I want to see the goodness. I want, I want to understand. You know, I accept it. I want, I want to understand. Show me. I know that you're good. Show me your goodness in this. So Habakkuk begins by making these petitions to God about these things. Uh, I told you that it's a very different book Uh, in that you see a conversation between Habakkuk and Yahweh, Habakkuk and God. And so what ends up happening is God responds to Habakkuk and he gives all of these woes that are going to fall on not only the head of Babylon, but also on Judah, also on Israel. Okay, he references the Chaldeans. So God is going to dispense justice where justice needs to be dispensed. And all the while... What we're understanding in this book is more and more of the character and more and more of the nature of God. That's a lot of how these books read. That's a way that you can approach Scripture, especially narrative. 
you know, we're going to go through the book of Galatians, and it's very easy because line by line you get these doctrinal statements, and you can just camp out on those things, right? I mean, even in the book of Romans, which we'll see in a moment, where Paul says that we were sinners, right? We were enemies of God, and we can just kind of stay there. These are, these are foundational statements that we can camp out on. Narrative doesn't so much read that way. So narrative, you have to step back and see the bigger picture, and that's this prophecy, uh, but it reads as though we're watching a story. We're watching a conversation unfold between Habakkuk and God. And so we're at this point now that God has responded to Habakkuk. God has said, woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. And Austin shared those with us two weeks ago. And here is Habakkuk's final response. He goes from petition to, I guess, profession or recognition to praise. All right, so he's gone from petition to adoration to praise. So here we are in chapter 3. Let me read this for you. I'll just read, the, the, I'll just read the, the scripture in total for you, and then we'll kind of go line by line and then finish with an application. I will move quickly through this, not because I have a lot of material, um, but because it's going to read much like a commentary until we get to the application part at the end. So starting in verse 2, where we were last week, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. We talked about those things. In the midst of the years, revive it or make him live. He's, he's, he's praying that God would, would preserve their life, that God would remember his covenant and that he would keep them. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's praying that they might understand that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of this crucible, that they've earned for themselves that they would learn from these things, that God would lovingly teach them what they're to come away with after going through something like this, going through God's divine retribution. And then he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. So he prays that God might have mercy on them. He doesn't, again, ask that God would take these things away from them. He doesn't say, hey, you know, could you just... Give him a pass here. He understands the nature of God. Habakkuk is showing you that he has a robust theology. He's showing you that he understands that things must happen, that discipline must be poured out, that they have to learn, that they're only going to be better. They're only going to come out better and more God-honoring on the other side if they go through this disciplinary action. But I also want to show you that Habakkuk doesn't, I didn't talk about this last week, but Habakkuk also doesn't pray that God would spare the Chaldeans. He doesn't ask that God would spare Babylon. He doesn't say, hey, God, would you just be the loving God that you are and give everybody a pass? I think Habakkuk realizes that God is just and justice must be dispensed or God ceases to be God. So then we move to verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens or covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And understand this, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but just let that land on you for just a second. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The eternal mountains, those mountains that are set, the mountains that are unshakable, 
He says the everlasting hills, these hills that are permanent, that are set in place. And he says that his are the real ways that are everlasting. Despite what man looks at and thinks, man, that is profound or that is eternal or that is, that is solid. It says his are the true ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Median did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This does not sound to me like the God I hear spoken of so often in our Christian culture today. This does not sound to me like what I'm used to hearing. I'm used to hearing of a God that is so relaxed and patient. A God that is just begging us to do right. A God that's almost dependent on us rather than us being utterly dependent on Him. A God that is fashioned in our image as opposed to us being fashioned in His image. I read this and, and it, it lands on me even heavier now than, than when I sat and, and, and studied it. That this is a God that we, that we tremble before. You know? <laughs> that all things that are permanent aren't compared to Him. That, that as Isaiah writes of, and he speaks of the nation, he says, what are you but drops in a bucket? What are you to compare yourself to the living, eternal, triune God? And this is how Habakkuk signs off. He signs off by making this proclamation and saying, I fully see where you are justified to roll in like a mighty, mighty warrior and lay waste and bring devastation on whomever you will and you're good for it. And he says, I'll wait on it. 
everything blows up, I will wait on it because you're good and you are right. So let's go back to verse 1. I'm just going to kind of, like I said, be more commentary. Verse 3, I'm sorry. So let's break this down. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now this is a difficult text to read. If you're just reading this in your own personal time, you're thinking, man, where do I even begin to understand where, where God is coming from with all of this or where, or where Habakkuk is coming from? What, what in the world is Timnon? What in the world is, is Mount Paran? You know, uh, if you were to show me a map of, of the ancient Near East or to show me a map of wherever this is, I can't find it unless it's labeled, right? I can't find it. Even then, I need some help because I don't know whether to go north, south, east, east or west from the middle of the map, right? I don't know. So I come to a text like this. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm no Hebrew scholar. You know, I'm no ge- I don't know geography so well. So I'm like, what, what do I do? So my, my week was really spent trying to really understand and interact with this text, you know, reading and absorbing all that I could to find out what real scholars have to say about it and how they could point me into the direction I would need to go so that I could honor God in my dealing with this text. Habakkuk is, is, is showing some of his cards here. It's very interesting because the way he addresses God is in three different ways. And I believe he does that to just show how thoughtful he is with regards to the person of God. He begins by re- referring to God by one of his names, Eloah, right? We would, we would spell it E-L-O-A-H. So I think that's how we would pronounce that in the English, Eloah. And he pronounces it that when he calls him that. It's an ancient poetic form of the name of God. But if you look in verse 8, he uses a different name. He uses Yahweh, which you and I are familiar with. But if you go to verse 19, Habakkuk refers to God as Yahweh Adonai, which he's, he's indicating his submission to the lordship of God. So I think what's happening is Habakkuk is moved to the degree that he really wants the reader to understand. Not that he's thinking of future readers, but we understand it. Maybe the Holy Spirit's wanting us to understand, you know, the, 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 the full breadth of God, the, 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 the majesty of God, the, the all-encompassing grandeur of God, that just in a few verses that he would be described in three different ways. You're Yahweh, you're the sovereign of all things, you're Eloah, you know, that, that he would use this form of literature to really just say, hey, you're special, you're unique, you're distinct, and then he would say, you are my Lord, you are my Yahweh, Adonai. Habakkuk looks back to God's visit on Mount Sinai. So how we deal with these two terms, and if you'll just allow me to be a little academic for a little while, then I would appreciate that because I want you to see, I don't want to miss these things. I don't want to just read this text and say, okay, let me, let me apply these things. Habakkuk said these things for a reason. The Holy Spirit inspired them for a reason. So I want to do my best uh, do my best to say, hey, just notice these things so that you can take home something very special in terms of the nuances in God's word. What Habakkuk is doing is he's mentioning these two locales for a reason because they are locales that are specific to the wilderness journey of Israel. So he's reflecting on Israel. He's reflecting on Israel being rescued by God from hundreds of years of Egyptian bondage and how God was faithfully with them all throughout the wilderness, leading them to the promised land, which God had promised as well. So that's a reflection there. So very simply, Timnon, Mount Paran, these things have to do with God's 
taking Israel through the wilderness and to the promised land. He says, your splendor covered the heavens. God is being spoken of in terms of his glory. He says, your glory has covered the heavens. Your splendor has covered the heavens. You've taken them out of here, showing God's active work, showing God's role, his action in all of these things and rescuing them. And then he backs up and says, but you're glorious, you're transcendent, you're above all, you're beyond all. The word glory really is all encompassing. It's really a hard word to define, but Habakkuk says, that his splendor or his glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. If you think of Isaiah chapter 6, this reads a lot like Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And it talks about the train of his robe. And it talks about the, 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 the crown. And it talks about what well, talks about the throne. It talks about all of these things. So it reads a lot like that. But Isaiah said what? I saw the glory of the Lord. So the, the language is very, very similar here. But it's hard for us to dial it in. It's very abstract. So let me share with you what I believe to be four good definitions. And you can take one, take them all, create some kind of amalgamation or a collage, if you will, and, and use those to help you understand what it is to see the glory of God or to understand it. One definition says the glory of God is the beauty of His Spirit. The beauty of His Spirit. It's not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty. But it is the beauty that emanates from His character. It's the beauty that emanates from all that He is. That's one definition of glory. Another theologian says the glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. It is the going public of His holiness. It's the display of His holiness. It's pretty tangible for me. That's probably one of my favorite definitions, and that's John Piper. I've, I've used that before. Another theologian says God's glory is God's weightiness in wonderful qualities such as his might, his beauty, his goodness, his justice, and his honor. And the final definition is the glory of God is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. So there's your definition. So if you want to settle on it's the display of his holiness or it's the display of his attributes or something like that, that's fine. But now that we take that understanding and we go back to the text and we say his splendor covered the heavens. All that makes God God covered all things because he cannot be contained is where Habakkuk is going with this. And then he says before him in verse 5 went pestilence. And what you're going to begin to see is that Habakkuk speaks towards God's power over nature. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. This shows that creation acquiesces to God's every command. That creation is an instrument in the hands to bring either devastation or to bring life. And the only creation, by the way, to balk at God is the crown of his creation, humanity. But at the end of the day, creation only balks at God because God allows it. 
Creation in no way has any kind of power or call to make to say, hey, God, I can do what I want on my own. And I'm going to go ahead and say it as if the will is that free. Because it's not. Your freedom goes as far as God allows. We don't have this absolute freedom to do whatever we wish or to do whatever we will with God. That negates the absolute sovereignty of God. Do you want to serve a God that cannot control what you do? Of course you don't. Do you want to serve a God that is powerless to do anything against what your will desires? The scripture is very clear that nothing can frustrate the will of God, but everything happens according to the counsel of his will. But creation acquiesces to God's every desire because he gets what he desires. Animals like Balaam's donkey (laughs) speaks. God curses a snake and tells it, now you're going to crawl on your belly. Pigs become a housing for the demonic realm for a moment because God can do what he wants to with pigs because he made them. God shut the mouths of lions. Do you understand that God created lions and he gave them their nature and their nature is to be predatorial and these lions were trained to kill these lions were basically uh man took lions nebuchadnezzar and those guys of babylon they took these lions they says i'm going to capitalize on their nature and i'm going to make this a form of capital punishment i'm going to make this a form of horrible horrible death for anybody that transgresses our laws And Daniel's thrown into this lion's den. But what happens? Despite the nature of the lion, they shut their mouths. Because God commands creation. And God says, not today. What about the waters? They're a part of nature. Jesus is God. He speaks to the winds. He speaks to the waves. And they agree. They do what he says. I've tried it. Doesn't work. (laughs) Verse 7 says, I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. I think that's so interesting. Let me, let me share with you what's happening here. All right, because if you're like me, you read this, you're like, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, help me find these places and then where do I go from there? What's happening here? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm sparing you the, 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 the very difficult scholastic part of this, okay? I'm sparing you the reading a page 17 times to try to understand it. I'm, I'm, I'm sparing you syntax. I'm sparing you these things. My job is not to get up here and try to prove that I'm a Hebrew or Greek scholar because I am not, so it would be a failed attempt. My job is to say, okay, now that we've figured out where it is, it's time to give it to you. It's time for you to take it. So understand that when he says... I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land median did tremble. What's happening here is basically this. You have two peoples that are camped in the path of a nation or of an entity that is moving through to wage war against someone. And these two entities, these two nations, these two peoples being cushion and Midian, is they are hoping and praying that the wrath that is promoting this entity moving through with fury that they don't get caught in the wake. They're hoping that they don't become collateral damage. And so what Habakkuk is ultimately saying as he sits there is that he trembles. 
he trembles and he quakes and he shakes because of what's going to happen to Babylon, because of what's going to happen to the Chaldeans, because of what's going to happen to Judah. And he steps back and he's like, man, I'm fearful. I'm fearful because God's mighty fury is moving through. It's moving through and there's nothing that's going to stop it. And I am fearful of what's going to happen. And I just hope that I'm not collateral damage of these things. Verse 8 says, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? This is a rhetorical question. God is not angry with the sea. God is not angry with the waves. God is not angry with the rivers. He's not angry with these things because they are subdued under his sovereignty. They are in full subjection to him. They do what he pleases. God's anger burns against man who has rebelled against him. God has not set out to destroy the sea. God's not going to do that. God has set out to bring retribution on those who have turned against him. And Judah and the Chaldeans are going to be recipients of his divine retribution. Habakkuk knows this. But here's what's beautiful in this text. He says, again, was your wrath against the rivers? No. Was your anger against the rivers? No. Was your indignation against the sea? Of course not. He says, when you rode on horses, on your chariot of salvation, God, like we talked about last week, the reason he says those last two lines in that verse is because God is going to bring salvation through judgment. And I won't go through all of that. I made an argument for that last week. If you missed that or want to hear that, go listen to last week's sermon or I'll send you my notes. But that's what Habakkuk is doing. That's, that's why that language kind of changes a little bit. Are you mad at this? Are you mad at this? When you rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation? In other words, God is charging through. But he's charging through with fury. He's charging through with an agenda. And ultimately that agenda is to bring about redemption. Is to bring about a rightness with his people. But it has to come through judgment. Habakkuk continues, he says, you stripped, through, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with the rivers. What this is revealing is that God is lining up for battle. I mean, you can see the scene unfold. God is in battle array. He's marching forward to go to the battle destination. I mean, the the iron is hot in the fire right now. Habakkuk can feel the tension. I mean, he's expressing this. This is, this is a hot, hot, heated moment. And then you see, not only is he moving towards the battle, but now he's ready for it. You know, think of a soldier. Think of an army. Think of an army that, that uh, I, can't, I can't help but think of the movie Troy. And, uh, uh, and this is not in my notes, so I'm not going to try to remember all the details. But there was a kingdom or a nation where the wife was taken, you know, from the king and went over to the other nation. And so he was really mad because the wife was taken and the wife went over there. So he was like, it's time for some retribution. So he mounts up his army to go get his wife back. And in the meantime, or, or while he's there, he's going to devastate everything. That's the idea. That's what's happening, you know, in that movie. It was, that's what's going on. And I think in terms of God marching in the same way for battle to dispense destruction and devastation because of the great offense that has been committed against him. 
And he pulls out his weaponry. Displaying his arsenal. Showing everyone that this is what it means when you offend a holy God. The mountains saw you and they writhed. Verse 10. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. He strips the sheath from the bow. A bow in the ancient text symbolized power and warfare. The deep, these are the waters that God lifted to crush the Egyptians. Again, there's a reference back to being freed from Egyptian bondage. And how did God finally deal the death blow to Egypt? He parted the Red Sea, parted these waters. Israel had safe passage, and then as the Egyptians pursued them, God caused all the water to come crashing down. And Habakkuk, it's referencing that. I mean, we can think of a lot of devastating ways for people to check out of this life. I mean, we've seen probably horrendous car crashes and things of that nature. But could you imagine in real time in our life today, and you were a witness of, of, of massive waters being parted and then coming crashing on somebody. I mean, this is something that has, that has made the history book, right? This is something of thousands of years that we still talk about today because of how monumental the moment was. And Habakkuk references this thing now. He's like, this is what you've done. God, in your anger and in your wrath, Lord, you've, you've parted these waters. You've, you've taken these waters, the raging waters swept up. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands. In other words, the Red Seas parted to come crashing down on the Egyptians. And now the same hand of wrath, the hand that also gives mercy, the hand that also gives, gives grace is going to dispense devastation. Verse 11 says, the sun and the moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. This is a reference to the book of Joshua. Uh, God gave Joshua great victory over many armies. We remember the battle of Jericho sometime after that against the Amorites. It reads in the text that God calls the sun and the moon to stand still. This, was, this is a reference to God giving into the hands, uh, giving the Amorites into the hands of Joshua and the army of Israel. And he references this because in the same way God is going to devastate Judah by the hands of the Chaldeans, by the hands of Babylon. Verse 12 says, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. This idea of threshing is what they would do is they would have like a circled pen and they would have... Um, they would have uh, like 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 grain or uh, let me find man I don't want to I don't want to get it wrong uh, my memory is not serving me well at the moment I do want to come back to that in a second but you would have these oxen would be they would move around a pit filled with wheat and barley thank you sorry wheat and barley to separate the ears of grain from the stalk by trampling the grain so these massive animals would come in there and they would just lay waste to everything underfoot separating wheat and grain so he uses this language this imagery so that we can really understand what's about to happen as God marched over everything in fury your threshold you thresh the nations in anger he's going to annihilate them like an like wheat and barley under the feet of oxen 
But let me go back up for just a second. I missed something. The sun and the moon still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped at the flesh of, uh, sorry, at the flash of your glittering spear. What is being shown here is that God does have enemies. I wanted to camp on this for just a second. God's going to bring judgment on his enemies. And I wanted to ask a question for you, and this is not obviously for you to respond to right now, but does it surprise you that God has enemies? Does it surprise you that God would pour out or dispense retribution or justice on his enemies? You know, I think it's one thing, we have to be careful the way we think about God. You know, it's not as though God cries in a corner because people hate him. It's not as though God is worried sick because someone said a nasty thing about him. You know, you've heard it before. God's a big boy. He can, he can handle himself. <laughs> this is not the idea of God. The idea here, again, in verse 11 is that God is lined up in battle array against his enemy. Not sitting on his knees, hoping that his enemies will have a change of heart towards him. You understand that? That's very important. God is lined up in battle against them. I think it's easy to adopt a worldview that says the enemies of God are only those that mock and scoff. It's easy to adopt a worldview that says the enemies of God are the fallen angels, the demonic realm, Satan himself, which we would say absolutely those are the enemies of God. It's a hard thing for our culture to digest and to say that the enemies of God is anyone and everyone outside of Christ. Anyone and everyone outside of Christ. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because you and I know people that are just as nice as they come. They're kind and you love them and I love them and you want the best for them and they truly want the best for you. We have someone in our neighborhood who is one of the nicest people that I've ever met. He doesn't know Christ. And he's never said a, an ugly thing to me. He's been so kind to my family, always considerate, always asking how things are going. But he doesn't know Christ. What does that make him? An enemy. Not an enemy that God looks at and says, oh, I hope that you would come to know that I'm for you, that I love you. He's an enemy that God lines up in battle array and fury against. Does this not give you a greater sense of emergency when it comes to the gospel? Because we're not dealing with people that are okay as long as your scale of goodness tips the scale of bad. We're dealing with people who are the nicest of folks, the kindest of people, great parents, great teachers, great pastors, but they're enemies of God. The enemy of God is anybody that is hostile or in opposition towards him as a non-believer. Romans 5.10 again says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, 
How many children do you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, that were sweet, sweet, sweet kids, came to the knowledge of Christ? God rescued them from darkness, and they were saved. And all the right sense of that word. But before that, enemies of God. I'm not trying to get into this age of accountability thing or whatever. I'm not talking about that. That's another discussion for another time. But enemies of God. Let's suffice it to say that you have a child that is well within the age of accountability. Just, just for the sake of argument, okay? Not that I'm adopting that. I want to be clear. We can have that conversation, but it's not for today, not for now. But that child comes to the knowledge of Christ. Sweet, sweet kid. You're on a roll, student. You've got your bumper sticker because you're so proud. They were an enemy of God. And on track, unless God's grace intervenes to be a recipient of the wrath of God. And I say that as a reformed person, fully understanding that the Scripture says that before I was in Christ, the wrath of God abided on me. Was I ever to receive it? No. But that doesn't negate the fact that it abided on me. It's not about how you act or feel towards God that makes you an enemy, but it's about what you are towards him. I have this conversation with my kids sometimes. It's been a long time. They may not remember. But we talked about different sins. We talked about the sin of homosexuality, or you can talk about the sin of pride, or whatever sin you want to. From the, from the bubblegum thie, bubble thief to the pedophile, we're all equally estranged from God as we've inherited this guilt before God, right? We tend to categorize these things sometimes. This is where the world gets, gets its, this is where the world gets our Christian worldview confused. And let me try to explain this. They think we believe that homosexuality, that lying, that thievery, that drunkenness, that all of these things or these people go to hell because they are what they because of what they do. We don't believe that. We believe you're separated from God because of what you are. And that changes the game a bit. Because it doesn't allow me to say, well, I'm going to pick these pet sins that are especially bad. You know, abortion. You know pedophilia abuse i'll just i'll camp out on those and say okay yeah yeah that person's going to hell and then all i'm doing is i'm saying because of what they do as if what they do is a so much greater offense than someone who just rejects christ they don't do awful things they just are awful because there's no one righteous not even one right And that's hard truth, I understand that. But again, from the bubblegum thief to the pedophile, all are born equally estranged from God. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So you've gone from this idea that God is angry to you see God marching. God shows his weaponry. He shows his arsenal. And now you see action. You see God moving and doing. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Here God is ultimately doing all of this for the salvation of his own people. His anointed, the scripture says, 
His anointed means those who are set aside for a purpose. Judah is set aside for a purpose. God's chosen people set aside for a purpose. And God is ensuring that that purpose comes to fruition. Because nothing can thwart the will of God. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. What's interesting about this, it's not comical, but it's... I don't know, for somewhat, for some reason it kind of is to me, that God takes the prowess, he takes the power, he takes the ability of the enemy, he even takes the weaponry of the enemy, and he uses it against them. And what this does is it shows that even your weaponry is powerless against God. Even your best laid plans, even your war strategy, even your thoughtfulness, because those things are yours because God has given them to you. Even though you use them for evil, they belong to God because all creation acquiesces to God at the end of all things. So God uses the enemy. He uses his power and weaponry against them. One theologian said it this way, whatever weapons or abilities are possessed by those who use them to oppose rather than to further God's work will find those weapons or abilities turned against themselves. Here's an example. Haman in the book of Esther was hanged by the same gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. Daniel's enemies were thrown into the same lion's den that was prepared to kill Daniel. The same theologian said this, rather than being terrified at the strength of our enemies, God's people ought to rest confidently in the assurance that the strength of the enemy's power only displays their capacity to destroy themselves. Verse 15, you trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Here we see the culminating victory of God over his enemies. That's why I would say that Habakkuk leans on the past for the surety of the future. So Habakkuk is speaking in a prophetic perfect. Habakkuk is speaking of something that took place that is so potent, so strong and lasting that it affects the future. The same way Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 53 with regards to Christ, he's speaking in a prophetic perfect. He's saying, these things I'm speaking of now, by his stripes we are healed. They are surety for what's going to take place in the future. The Bible is laid out in such a way that we have to wait. I'm sorry, the Bible is not laid out in such a way that we have to wait until the end of the gospel to realize that God is ultimately victorious. I mean, what a, what a cliffhanger. If you're reading from Genesis to the latter portion of John, you're like, okay, is he going to win? <laughs> is it going to happen? That's a long time. That's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of edge on your seat. But I would submit to you that where we know definitively that God is victorious is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. God created out of nothing, out of his perfections, out of himself. He didn't have clay to mold or to shape into what he wanted out of nothing but himself God created which I believe is probably the if not one of the strongest verses to support the sovereignty of God because nothing was there except God 
and he made what he wanted for the reason he wanted it. And then Habakkuk shifts gears here. Verses 17 through 19, he says, I'm sorry, verse 18. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And he says these things because he is shaken by what he's realizing. God is good. God is right. But God is not a joke. Sin is not a joke. And so he trembles. Rottenness enter his bones. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. I will quietly wait. I will not beg for God to turn. I will not beg for a reprieve. I will not beg that God does something different. I will wait for that day to come upon people who invade us. So obviously, it's going to be on Judah's head, but on the head of the Chaldeans. And let me say this by way of application, and we'll finish. What lessons do we learn from this book? So if we back up, what do we take away from the book of Habakkuk? A few things. I think first is that God is not one to be trivial with. God is not one to take lightly. Understand that the offenses committed against God are not like the offenses that are committed against your mommy and your daddies. Big difference here. Remember how God responded to Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit? The question is, does the punishment fit the crime? You ever ask yourself, they ate a piece of fruit. They took a bite. Maybe they ate the whole thing. And how did God respond? Kicked them out of the garden. The curse was on them, and they would eventually die. You say, yeah, the punishment fits the crime. Why? How do you know? Because God is holy. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. Some of you might say, well, it wasn't much of a lie. It was just a little lie. God dropped them in their tracks. But the ultimate example that God is not to be trivial with is that he offered up his own son. He did not spare Jesus. He gave up Jesus. That's how horrible sin is. If we become cavalier about our sin, church, we become cavalier about God. There's no other way about it. If you are cavalier about your sin, you are cavalier about God. You cannot say, I love God, I love God, I love God, but I'm just going to do this. God will forgive me. You do not respect or fear God if you are cavalier about your sin. Let's just be honest with ourselves. If I indulge in this, maybe it's not as bad as what they're doing. Maybe it's not what they're doing. I just, just, I just do this every now and then. I know it's not great. When I'm doing those things, I'm not cavalier about God. I don't fear him. I'm not thinking of what could happen. I'm not thinking of the way Habakkuk thinks. My feet aren't trembling underneath me. So God is not one to be trivial with. Also, we take away from this book that what enemy is there that can dare stand against God? Believer, you should never tremble before men because it's God who causes men to tremble. It's the gospel that encloses us in a peace that cancels out fear. You know, fear says I'll be alone. The gospel says I do not fear or do not fear because I'm with you. Fear says it's too much to carry. The gospel says cast your cares upon me. 
Fear says, I don't know what's coming. Fear, God, the uh, gospel says, do not worry, for you do not know what a day may bring. Fear says, I make so many mistakes. And the gospel says, we're chosen and uh, holy and blameless. Fear says, my enemies encamp around me. But the gospel says, the Lord is a warrior, strong and mighty in battle. There's a danger in deep-seated fear in the hearts of a believer. Fear misinforms and distorts reality. It suggests that God is not with you. Joshua 9 says, Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear competes against and labors to replace love. John 4, 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen, fear robs you of peace. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And finally, fear mis misrepresents you because the Scripture says that you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. I think we also walk away from this book, and we're almost finished, is that God works on the past. God's works from the past provides surety of his works in the future. This is one instance in which living in the past is a good thing, right? We would normally say that's not so great. Don't live in the past, right? <laughs> Don't look to what lies behind, but what lies ahead. Leaning on God's faithfulness is always good as it relates to le leaning on the past. But some of us don't do that. So my question is, has God not proven himself faithful to all of you time and time again? I think some of us are good at remembering the good, and follow me on this, but we're bad at remembering the bad. And this is what I mean, remembering the good. We cling to God's good works and faithfulness to give us the surety we need to make it around every corner. This is good. These good things that God has done. So we say, okay, he's done this, so I can expect this. Praise God. He's faithful. This is going to happen. Yeah, and we're thinking, he's faithful. Hey, you know what? He's, he's for you. He's not against you. You know, he wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So he's doing that for you. He's the active agent, and you're the passive agent. So we're great about that. But what we're bad at remembering is that, oh, when you cross this line, there is divine retribution, oh, when I indulge in this, God doesn't like that so much. And maybe he'll respond in this way, whether it's something you've seen in your life or whether it's something we reflect on in the text. So we're bad at remembering that sometimes because we keep running to the trough of worldliness and indulging in that because we don't remember that God hates it. And the final thing I think we walk away with is faithfulness is not just descriptive of how God acts or how he acted in the past, but it's descriptive of who he is. It's who he is. God keeps his promises because he's faithful. God is trustworthy because he is faithful. So what do we do? We do what Habakkuk is doing, or what he did. We wait. We wait for his grace to fall on those whom he has elected before the foundation of the world. We wait for God's justice to fall on those who are prepared as vessels of wrath. We don't make the call. We wait. We wait on God's promises to his beloved. We wait for healing. Should he bring it? We wait for perseverance. Should we need it? Sometimes our waiting causes us to stand down and sometimes our waiting calls us to action. But we wait.
And may we be able to echo the words of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Father, may your word take root in our hearts this morning. Although, a, for me, a fairly difficult text, God, I pray that the truth within will reverberate inside of my heart and mind. Or that I wouldn't be so quick to walk away and forget all of these things, which I know I have a tendency to do because I move on to another text and I start working on that. Lord, give me recall of this. Bring it to the front of my mind involuntarily, Lord. I pray that you do that for me. Lord, so that I may have every confidence and every surety that you're going to be faithful because that's who you are. But Lord, that I may also remember that you are faithful in dispensing justice. That you are faithful in dealing according with your nature as a just judge. And may I fear you in the right ways. May we fear you in the right ways. And may the world see in us a sobriety that only comes through the gospel, that only comes through sanctification, that only comes through the grace and the work that you do in us. And may they see a sincerity. And may doors open for gospel conversations so that others who don't believe, who are enemies of you right now, might they be reconciled to you through Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.